Hello, KCSU. My name is Charles. We're here today with the lovely Amanda Kowalski, a classmate of mine, talking about framing. Yes. So you started talking about framing because of the first presidential debate, correct? Yeah. So my roommates and I are all pretty politically active, and we are really excited for the debates. You know, we got crazy Carl's and hunkered down in our living room. And, and when we started to watch, you know, it was what it was. But when the topic of climate change came up, one of my roommates asked, you know, why is the question, do you believe in climate change? And I, I didn't really understand what she meant. I was like, what do you what do you mean? And she she kind of got frustrated and she was like, how is it possible that the question is still about believing in climate change? Right. You know, we know it's real. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, we have like decades and decades of proof. We have all this paleo environment data. Um, it's kind of like asking, like, do you believe in gravity? It's not really <laughs> something you can say, yes, I believe in or no, I don't. And, you know, her question really struck me because she was right. I mean, this was like a national news platform asking, do you believe in climate change? You know, why is something factual still viewed as something that's up to personal belief? And so I started to wonder about this and and I built on it for this podcast because it's it's not just climate change that's still questioned, right? I mean, we have tons of other really important issues that have a lot of research behind them that people still are just like, no, they're not real, mm-hmm. right? So we have like systemic racism in America, or, you know, global biodiversity loss. And, and this led me to, again, the guiding question for this podcast, which is why are some issues still not understood by portions of the public when we have mountains of proof for them? And I really believe that the answer to this problem is is within the academic community. And, and that's because academia is really failing in our communication with the public over complex issues. So you're, so you're saying that it, there's a disconnect between the ivory tower academic <laughs> world Absolutely. and the public. Absolutely, yes. Because again, with that, you know, ivory tower imaging, you know, all of us researchers, we forget that we're in this little bubble of research, right? I mean, we 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 do our research, we publish in our journals, and then we read our own work and we read other people's journals, but we forget that the majority of Americans don't read academic journals and they don't keep up with you know nature and yeah, absolutely yeah <laughs> and so you know but we forget this so so we go to share research with people you know at public presentations and we use powerpoint slideshows and we throw data at them and we try to use appeals you know we tell them everything they're doing wrong and why our research is so awesome and then it doesn't really sink in <laughs> and, we, and then we just keep doing it again right we we think we need more data and we need more information and we need more appeals. And this cycle just continues over and over because then the researchers just leave and we go back to our universities and we go back to our publishing and journals. And, and the blame for the misunderstanding for this gap is pretty much put on the audience, you know, which is understandable, right? I mean, from a presenter's view, it's easy to write off the ideological mm-hmm. opposition. It's easy to say, oh, you know, they just don't understand. It was too complicated or... They don't care. They don't want to understand. This is a big problem because when we do that, it just perpetuates the cycle. And it it continues painting this picture of the ivory tower academics. And and we still have people then who say that climate change isn't real. And, And we have people who say, you know, racism is dead in America. And we still have people saying that, you know, biodiversity loss isn't a, isn't a problem. Yeah. Something's not getting through. Right? Yeah. yeah. But, the, you know, people haven't really noticed that until now, which is a big issue. Where do you think researchers are going wrong? Like, what are they doing wrong that's creating this problem? So, I mean, I don't want to say there are a lot of things, but the main part of this is, is framing. And, and framing is everything when it comes to meaningful communication. 
So George Lakoff, who, who's a very respective cognitive linguist, he describes frames as these structures that are actual neural circuits in our brains. And they allow all of our knowledge to run through these structures. And because pretty much every thought we have triggers a system of frames, mm-hmm. right? But not everyone's frames are the same. So, I mean, I like to think of framing like how each individual processes and sees the world. And, you know, one of our classmates actually described frames as like a frame on a movie camera, which I thought was really great imaging. And it's important because, you know, imagine for a moment my lens is red and yours is blue and somebody asks us what color is the world. We're going to get into a heated argument. (laughs) Absolutely. Both of us think we're right. And, you know, if you introduce a blue object into my red frame, I'm not going to be able to handle it. My like my world will either collapse if I try to try to accept that or I'll just get mad at you. I'll be like, that's not blue. That's red. Or I'll just dismiss it. I'll be like, you're wrong. You don't know what you're talking about, whatever it is. And the colors are like super simplified version, right? I mean, like, but the framing really does matter. I mean, especially when we come to complex issues, like the ones that we're talking about. You know, example that we have from our class is the mass spraying of control chemicals after coming out of World War II. So like insecticides and herbicides. So, I mean, most of these chemicals were developed for warfare, Mm -hmm. which is great. (laughs) And then transitioned and tweaked to be applied to the agriculture community. And through the 50s and 60s, you had you had quite a few researchers that are, you know, finding out that they're super dangerous. <laughs> I mean, like Aldrin, Eldrin, DDT being sprayed indiscriminately across massive landscapes. You know, entire ecosystems are crumbling. You know, crops are dying. Animals are dying. People are dying. And the researchers were just ignored. Like nobody really cared. <laughs> and, 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 you know, in my opinion, framing, framing is the big thing here. I mean, because when you when you think about Western frames of the environment, specifically American frames, we have these two big ones that really matter. And the first one is that nature is separate from humans, right? It's this great other, you know, we're removed from it. We don't interact with it. You know, we act on it. Mm-hmm. And it's and then there's a second one, which is, you know, humans have to control nature. It's like our it's our primary goal of existence <laughs> is to control nature. This could be anything from cutting down forests to build towns or, or, you know, building dams or in this case, spraying our fields and our forests. And Lisey Kral is an ecological economist, and she talks about this domestication of nature that is a really pervasive lens in American history, right? We still have it perpetuating through to today. But anyway, so we so we have chemical spraying coming out of World War II. And these companies really capitalize on these frames, right? You know, they they loudly broadcast that if they don't spray, then, you know, plays of insects will destroy our food supply. People are going to starve. Nature will become untamable. We'll never be able to get it back. And we'll lose this ongoing battle. And then at the same time, so they're doing that. But then they're also telling people it's completely safe. These sprays, these chemicals are marketed in grocery stores. You know, Rachel Carson actually talks about this. You know, they're they're put under pretty little signs with gardens and flowers and there's no warning labels. And if they are, they are incredibly hard to find and very hard to read. And, and they're in glass jars next to olives and tomatoes. So, I mean, how, how dangerous could they be? I mean, about as dangerous as an olive or a tomato, right? So when these scientists come out and they're, they're waving this massive red flag, again, nobody believes them, but that's not really surprising, right? Because the frames are, well, well we have to control nature. Like, we're going to starve if we don't spray. And they thought they were doing it safely, right? So, so again, like, nobody believed them. Nobody really cared. And these researchers, again, are ignored for the better part of two decades until Rachel Carson writes Silent Spring in 1962, which, you know, sparks the environmental movement. But even then, there's this really negative, like really violent response to Rachel Carson. I mean, people were writing into newspapers calling her a communist. <laughs> I mean, saying that she was an uneducated radical, that she should be thrown into prison. 
And, and that's this negative reaction we talked about before when frames are challenged, right? I mean, Carson, Carson would have been a blue object in a red world. And this meant that being against chemical spraying was, was also an American. I mean, it went against very ideals of this nation. And this is an example from almost 60 years ago, but the same exact thing still happens, right? I mean, if I approach a person and say the word climate change, and that triggers a series of negative frames, or, you know, their frames don't allow for climate change to fit in, then I'm just wasting my time. I mean, I'm shut down from the beginning. Their framing will not allow for the information to sit. And, you know, they'll throw it out as untrue or forget it or, you know, have a negative reaction. You know, if I, but if I'd been aware of these frames that this person had, if I had known, hey, they don't, they don't like the word climate change, but I, I can still talk to them about, you know, the wildfires and talk to them about how much land is going up in flames or how bad these droughts are. Maybe I could have gotten somewhere. Yeah. Right. And, and so, again, this is where academics have failed. We've just straight up failed. <laughs> you know, we assume because of our frames, we think everyone will accept facts as facts. We think that everyone will be like, oh, yeah, that's true. But that's not the case. And we forget this. And this is a huge problem, right? Because if this information that we are sharing is not resonating with the public, what are we doing? Right. What is the point of this? Yeah. <laughs> so what is what is the solution? And do you think anthropology has something to do with that solution? I definitely think anthropology has something to do with that because, you know, anthropology focuses doesn't really focus on frames specifically, but it focuses on culture and life experience, which shape frames. Right. And and so for those who aren't familiar with anth, uh, we study humans. We look at human behavior and culture and biology and history, and we look at variation across humans. And cultural anthropology is a specific subfield of the of the discipline. And we study culture. And so basically we immerse ourselves within cultural groups and, and we burrow into all the nitty gritty details of what people do and where they do it and why they do it and how they do it. You know, we look at their symbols and how they talk and, and what makes them happy and what gives them comfort and, you know, how they express themselves. And even super important here, their frames and how their frames develop. And the main idea that I want to highlight from this field is something called a culture broker, um, which was a term introduced to me from Dr. Kate Brown, who's a cultural anthropology professor here at CSU. She's she's our professor. She wrote a book called Standing in the Need, which is about a journey of an African-American family after Hurricane Katrina. And in this book, she presented this concept of a culture broker. So I'm just going to read a passage from the book because I think it does an awesome of explaining what culture brokers are. So Dr. Brown writes, invisible cultural divides reside everywhere, quietly separating people by religion, class, race, language, power, gender, ethnicity, and education. Cultural brokers bridge cultural divides and smooth communication between groups that don't quite get each other. Cultural brokers use their ears and their voices. They listen and then communicate their insights back and forth, back and forth, helping both parties make sense of one another. So that's the end of the quote. And and even though Dr. Brown doesn't say the word framing, it's like huge here, right? I mean, <laughs> she's pretty much saying every other word except framing. And culture brokers are essentially translators of frames. That's what they do, right? So yeah, I think that we should bring culture brokers into academia. I think it's really important. And this can be applied not just to anthropology, but to all disciplines, really. I mean, we desperately need culture brokers <laughs> as the public faces of academia. We, we need people who can translate the information researchers are generating into appropriate frames for individual audiences. For example, a presentation on local climate change impacts would have to be delivered very differently to housing developers on the coast of Florida than to environmental activist groups in Washington. And, 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 you know, I'm not saying that one of these presentations would be better than the other or more complicated or whatever. I'm saying that the framing would have to be very, very specific and, because these groups have different interactions with these impacts, right? They have different wants, they have different needs, they have, and they have different frames. 
And the culture broker would have to be the one aware of what information would coincide with these frames and, and what the audience would need and what it wouldn't need. And so, you know, if we were able to do this, we could begin to deliver meaningful messages across this communication divide that we have been failing to cross for decades. And the results could be something as simple as more citizens in the United States understanding complex topics like climate change, you know, like systemic racism, like biodiversity loss. But I mean, this could even help government agencies or NGOs run more effectively and accomplish goals generated from culture brokers, right? I mean, I think of a book called Mountains Beyond Mountains, which is by Tracy Kidder. Um, and he discusses an NGO's push to get quality healthcare to Haiti. And one of the biggest issues that he talks about is this general lack of understanding between what low people actually need versus what NGOs and researchers thought they needed. And, you know, a culture broker here could have easily fixed this. I also think about how this could strengthen policy writing and create new laws with uh, better fundamental understandings of what researchers are actually seeing. I mean, imagine how much better climate policy would be if everyone actually believed in climate change. <laughs> or, you know, imagine the reparations we could start to make if people understood what systemic racism was and how it came to be. You know, think about how many species we could save if everyone understood the rate at which we're losing them right now. And, and so the implications of this are massive, absolutely massive. And it all comes down to framing, in my opinion. And this is why I really think CSU should have a class in every discipline that discusses how to apply findings from research to the public. I mean, every student should understand what framing is and how it's used and how to use it effectively. This might sound extreme, but, you know, what's the point of generating knowledge if it's not going to be shared with others and it's not going to be used to improve life on this planet? I mean, absolutely. Right. Like, in my opinion, knowledge for the sake of knowledge, it, it's wasteful. It's really lazy. It's it's missing the bigger picture that, frankly, we've been missing for a really long time now. But it doesn't have to be this way. I mean, if we improve the awareness of this communication gap across all disciplines and, and create culture brokers that can talk to citizens and policymakers, we can implement real change that has been stagnated for decades. And when I say we, I mean us. I mean CSU students. I mean college kids. You know, we can be the next generation advocating for improved communication between these cultures. And, and we should be the ones to fix this. And I honestly, I really think we can be. So you're saying the world needs more anthropologists. <laughs> this is my very complicated version of saying the world needs more <laughs> anthropologists. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us, Amanda. Thank you to KCSU for hosting Woo! this podcast series. Yeah. We love you. Thank you for